Well, we're going to continue with uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, and we'll just start with, with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son and for his teaching here. And Father, we are increasingly challenged by what he has to say to us. And yet we realize that these things are the life eternal, that they, these are the principles by which we shall eternally live. And we pray, Father, that into our lives now, the principles of your kingdom, your kingship over us might break through. We pray then for understanding and for strength to be submissive and obedient to the principles that we see in Jesus and in his teaching. Please, Father, give us that insight, that understanding, the kind of understanding that motivates actually doing these things and being these things and being these persons that we know that we should be. So please help us for his sake. Amen. Well, here in Matthew 7, <clears throat> we start off, uh, I think, uh, a new section. I said that I don't really think you can break the sermon up into sections, but I must admit here in chapter 7 it does appear that he's starting a, a, a new train of thought that leads right throughout the chapter, and it's about judging. Uh, judge not that you be not judged. Now, later on in this very same chapter, he's going to go on to say, verse 6, don't give that which is holy unto the dogs, don't cast your pearls before swine, uh, and, and so on. So I don't think that not judging means not showing discernment. And there is a difference. And that the problem is that the, the Greek word prino that's translated to judge has a very wide range of meaning. But the word uh, that's used in verse 2, with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. Every one of the 28 occurrences of that Greek word refer definitely to condemnation. So I would say then the judging that he's outlawing in verse 1 judge not that you be not judged, really would be better rendered, do not condemn, so that you will not be condemned. It doesn't mean that you can't tell black from white. And we live in a world where increasingly people cannot tell, or don't want to tell, black from white, where people do not want to show any discernment. When, let's face it, we're in a postmodern age where really anything goes, and it's all a matter of inflection of meaning, it's all just your personal uh, idea, the idea of truth, truth has perished in, in this earth, it, it really has. And yet when we encounter the ultimate truths of God and of his son and of his word, we are up against something that is absolutely the very opposite to the postmodern spirit in which we live. So don't think that you cannot have any valid opinion and do not think that it's only your opinion. There is ultimate discernment that is possible and that is, I think, the art of spiritual life to show ultimate discernment. But what he's saying here, within the context of the disciples, and I have said that he addresses the sermon primarily to them, he initially goes up into the mountain at the beginning of chapter 5 with the disciples to teach them, and admittedly by the end of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8, uh, we have a position where the multitudes also come down from the mountain with him when he's finished. But uh, they were sort of peripheral to the whole thing. The, the thrust of his message here is to his disciples, to those who have made a conscious election to be with him. And he's telling them and us, therefore, that we are not to, to condemn. Because with what measure you uh, meet, you give out, it shall be measured to you again. And the context clearly is in judgment, at the day of judgment. Now, this is a, a ladder with which to reach the stars. Here we have a real principle that how you 
give to people in your measure of judgment is exactly how you shall be judged. Now, let's not just uh, glance at this and, and nod approvingly and move on in our lives. This is a fundamental. This is saying that for you and me, that how we judge issues will have its ultimate end in how we are judged. So actually, how you're going to be judged is not necessarily uh, this huge question mark at the end of your destiny. You know the standards and the style of judgment that you're going to get because you should know how you are judging others. And that is the basis of how we shall be judged when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in the last day. That's why it's absolutely, it's absolutely outlawed to condemn. Because if you condemn others, you shall be condemned. This is what it says. Now, in a community like our own, that, that studies the scriptures and has found all sorts of errors in mainstream, mainline uh, Christian theology, such as the Trinity and uh, existence of, of, of Satan, going to heaven when you die, immortal soul, etc., we can sometimes miss the, the forest, miss the trees of the forest or whatever. We, we can fail to actually see that there's some very basic principles here, very basic principles, that affect life eternal. And that are not difficult to figure out. That do not require knowledge of Hebrew, Greek, grammar, etc. It's just staring you there in the face. That how you judge others is how you shall be judged. Now, this does not only apply to, let's say, church decisions, ecclesial decisions. Shall we disfellowship this, this guy or shall we not? How you and I judge is within our mind. Here you are in conversation with someone and you're forming an opinion. That's quite normal. Uh, you're forming an opinion of a person. When someone's name comes up, what are you thinking in your mind about that person? Well, whatever you're thinking in your mind, with what measure you measure it shall be measured to you again. He goes on then in verse 3, and why do you behold the, the splinter, the moat, the AV says, and the, the, the Greek really means a twig of a, a tree. Why do you behold the twig that's in your brother's eye, but you don't consider the beam, the plank of wood, that is in your own eye? Why do you do that? And we can sometimes miss the point that there is a question here that demands an answer. Why do you do that? And I think the answer lies in, although it's partly rhetorical, but I think the, the answer lies in the connection between the twig, or the, uh, the splinter, and the plank, that it's all of the same material, it's all wood. You have a huge blank, uh, plank in your own eye, you've got a load of wood in your own eye, but you focus upon the little piece of wood that you see in your brother's eye. Now he's likely got a plank, because the idea uh, of this is that you've all got planks in your own eye, but you only see the splinter. And I think that what the Lord is saying is, because you've got that plank in your eye, you think that you, can, uh, you need to get out the, the splinter that's in your brother's eye. When what you're not realizing is that you have huge sin. It may, be, it may have been dealt with by forgiveness and repentance and, and so forth, but all the same, you have that there in your eye, 
and yet you focus upon the little thing that you notice in your brother's eye, why do you do that? And I think this rhetorical question, why, needs dwelling on. Why are we so sensitive to the sins of others when they are, in essence, of the same material as our own sins? Why do we do that? Well, a psychologist might answer it this way. Because of the principle of transference, and what does that mean? It means that I transfer my sin onto you. We all have a conscience about sin. We all recognize that, you know, I sin, I mess up. Okay, and so we transfer that onto the other bloke. And we therefore want to, to see that sin judged very, very hard. Because he has sinned, etc. He's got to be judged for that sin. This is why, quite often, especially in spiritual life, one encounters absolute colossal scale, cosmic scale hypocrisy. Whereby, for example, the guy who's committing adultery makes a huge fuss about some other guy in the church who's committing adultery. And then, later, you know, years later, it comes out that, oh, you know what, he was having affairs all over the place, and he beat up poor old Johnny for having an affair when he was having a whole load of affairs himself. Wow, how is that possible? Quite, quite easy to understand why that's possible when you think about it. There's that guy having affairs all over the place, he knows it's wrong, he knows that sin must be judged, so he transfers his sin onto the other guy, and then starts condemning him. And not only that, another question that, that arises in church life is, why is there so much slander? And the more you experience this and go further, so the, the more you see that actually the slander that's often raised against people, the, the guy who's raising the slander is actually guilty of the slander he created. Let's say that Johnny actually is a good living guy and never had an affair with anybody. Why does, why does the other bloke say, Johnny, Johnny's having an affair. We need to disfellowship him. Johnny, that's terrible, man, you're having an affair. We're going to judge you. We're going to chuck you out of the church. And then it turns out the bloke who's saying that, it's not true at all. And he's having an affair himself. Well, when this hits churches and ordinary, you know, members, they're all shocked at the hypocrisy and, oh, it was awful, you wouldn't believe it. Yeah, 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 that's obvious. Why is that guy creating the slander against Johnny? Because he's transferring his own sin onto Johnny and getting it punished. Now, of course, the guy doesn't realize he's doing that and poor old Johnny's scratching his head and thinking, my goodness, Blake, what's with this fella? But the Lord has got his finger right on this. Why do you behold the twig that is in your eye? That's something that's in your brother's eye when you don't look at the plank in your own eye? Yeah, this, this is the answer. Very much so. Now, you'll notice that the Lord really has got his finger right on the pulse here. Because in verse 5, sorry, verse 4, How will you say to your brother, let me pull out the, the splinter out of your eye. He says that it, it's going to be motivated on the surface by concern for your brother. And just a few verses earlier, in Matthew 6, he's been talking about having a single eye. And it's as if the Lord is continuing. Although this is a new section, he's always continuing from a previous thought within the sermon 
And I think he's saying, yeah, I taught you about having a single eye, uh, but you know what? Your tendency is, is going to be to not worry about having a single eye yourself, but instead to focus upon the other guy who you worry has not got a single eye. Is there something wrong with his eye? And you're going to do it under the guise of, we're only trying to help you. Now, this happens so often. The, the guy who says, Johnny, you're having an affair, when Johnny's not having an affair, um, beats him up and, and uh, disfellowships him. This fellow will stand up in business meetings of the church and say all this stuff about, uh, you know, out of great concern for our, our dear brother Johnny, and uh, we do this in love. <laughs> this is a load of nonsense. Uh, it's not done in love. It, it's not done with genuine motive. And believe me, I, I've been through all this. I've gone through this school uh, absolutely to the end. And I've seen other people go through it a little bit, a lot, uh, all the same. Other people have gone through this, many, many people. And uh, the guy says, you know, oh, brother, let me help you. And I think what the Lord is saying is a lot of your judgmentalism and a lot of your hypocrisy and a lot of your unloading of your sin upon the other guy, you're actually going to justify it under the name of love, under the name of I'm helping my brother to have a single eye. He got something wrong with him, I've got to help him. That's the motivation you'll use. And of course, if, if that really were the motivation for disfellowshipping people and um, chucking people out of churches and so forth, uh, refusing to break bread with people and all, all this stuff that goes on, then, uh, of course, the people doing that, if they were sincere, would continually be trying to go to the person and persuade them to change. But, I mean, they, they never do that. They just chuck people out of the church and that's, that's the end. See you later. Uh, but that's exactly what the Lord has got his finger on here. It's amazing how he, 2,000 years ago, could foresee the exact issues that are going on in, in human life today. It's quite amazing. <clears throat> and he, he says, you do not consider, verse 3, you don't consider the plank that is in your own eye. Now, I've made the point that the letter of James is very often a, a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And I've suggested that the Sermon on the Mount was absolutely central to the early church, and that therefore the later letters in the New Testament are full of allusion to it. Well, in James 1, 23 and 24, James repeats this Greek word for consider. Why don't you consider the plank that's in your own eye? He says, if any man, this is chapter 1 of James, verse 23, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like to a man beholding his natural face in a mirror. Um, <clears throat> that, that word for beholding is the same word as consider. He considers his face, including his eye, in the mirror. He beholds, he considers himself and goes his way and immediately forgets what manner of man he was. Now, I think that James is alluding there to what the Lord is teaching here, that you don't consider the plank that's in your own eye. What James is saying is, well, you know, we do, now and again, you do see it in the mirror when you hear the word, but then you straight away forget it and go your way. And is this, again, not exactly how life works out? That we do have moments, it may be lasting literally seconds, when we are smitten with an awareness of how deeply we have sinned and failed. But it, but it passes. And we go on and we forget that moment. And we forget those feelings. 
if those seconds of deep conviction of the plank that's in your own eye uh, were to continue for hours, for days, for weeks, if you could hold that intensity uh, of, of conviction, then without question, you would not judge others. You would not be running around trying to pull twigs out of your brother's eye. But, as James says, we forget it. <clears throat> so it's as if he's taken the Lord's thought a bit further. When he says, the Lord says, you don't consider the plank in your own eye. <clears throat> and James is saying, well, actually, we do for a few passing seconds, but the tendency is to forget it. And to just play on. And to just go on like you never saw it. <clears throat> Now, of course, there is something very bizarre. There's something almost cartoon-like in the, the picture that the Lord is painting here. That the, the man with a plank in his eye is stumbling around trying to take a splinter or a, a twig out of his brother's eye. Now, <clears throat> this is bizarre. But this is how absurd it is when this is what we try to do. Now, a splinter will come out of an eye naturally. Its presence provokes tears, and those tears eventually wash it out. And maybe the Lord has that in mind, that he's saying that <clears throat> that little bit of wood in someone's eye, you know, the grief of life, quite without your help, will get rid of that. And that is often the case. But it is not for us to run around picking people up on every bit of human failure in their lives. Over time, as I say, the tears of life, the grief of life, washes a lot of that stuff out. Now, I want to focus upon this phrase that he uses in verse 4, <clears throat> let me pull out the splinter from your eye. Now, it's the same word <clears throat> that you've got, out, uh, got in verse 5, to cast out, pull out to cast out the splinter. And the word is elsewhere used about the casting out of the rejected in condemnation. Chapter 8, verse 12, the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. Uh, and so it goes on, <clears throat> chapter 22, verse, uh, verse 13, and if you look in my notes on the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see a whole load of these, these passages. Now the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him out into outer darkness. 25, verse 30, Luke 13, 28, John 6, 37, etc. So it's definitely used about casting out in the last day. But it's also used about casting out from the church. 3 John 10, Diotrephes cast people out from the church. It's used about <clears throat> the blind man being cast out of the synagogue, John 9, 34. Now, in Luke's account, if you go over to Luke chapter 6, he uses this word uh, a couple of times within the same section, and it's quite instructive. Luke 6 verse 22, Men shall cast out your name as evil. <clears throat> they shall separate you from their company and cast you out. And this is a reference to being chucked out of the synagogue, out of religious association. And then later on in Luke 6 verse 42, we have the same uh, record uh, as we've just been reading pull out, cast out the splinter that is in your eye you hypocrite throw out the plank from your eye 
and then you will see clearly to cast out the, uh, the splinter from your brother's eye. <clears throat> so casting out is very much the language of two things. It's used about condemnation of the last day, and it's used about casting people out of the church or the synagogue. And in that sense, it is always used negatively. That Diotrephes should not have cast people out of the church. It was quite wrong for the Jews to cast out the Christians from the synagogue, etc. It's interesting that in God's wisdom, that Greek word is used in those two connections, to cast out in condemnation of the last day and to cast out of a, the church or the synagogue. Because the body of Christ is his church. It's not your body, not my body, not anyone's body, not a denomination's body. It is the body of Christ. If you cast somebody out, and the, <clears throat> the metaphor, of course, implies that you do it against their will. I'm talking about people who themselves simply don't want to come anymore. I'm talking about a willful telling of someone, from now on, you are not in fellowship and you can't come. You're out. You can't take the emblems uh, of God's love. You, you cannot uh, be here, as it were in full fellowship with us. To do that <clears throat> is effectively to condemn. Of course, people say, oh, oh no, 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 no. We're, we're not condemning you. We're just saying that you're cast out of the church. And we're not condemning you. But you are. And, and you talk to anyone, absolutely anyone has had this experience of being forcibly cast out. That is against their will. Not someone who just doesn't come anymore of their own volition, for their own reasons. But you talk to anyone who's ever been told you can't come. You can't take the bread and wine. You're cast out. You talk to anyone who's had that done to them against their will, they'll all say the same. Well, of course, it is you know, a condemnation. Uh, and it is, because <clears throat> that, that's exactly what these words mean. So to cast out of the church is to, as it were, condemn. That cannot be got away from by any means. It's no good people saying, oh, that's not what we mean by it, but that is how it's felt, and that's what that, that's how the, the New Testament uses the idea. So you may say you're not doing it, but in practice you are. And if someone is in the body of Christ, who are you to, to then say, no, you're not? No, you know, you can't partake of the banquet. I can, but you can't. When it's not your banquet, it's not your bread and wine, it's not your church, it's the Lord's. So... At the very least, you're absolutely arrogant to, to think that. So, yes, I'm arguing for an open table. That's definitely, as you know, my, my position. Um, but I don't think it's just a, an argument. I think that this is life eternal. I mean, what the Lord is saying here is pretty serious. So then, <clears throat> he's saying that if you cast out the plank from your own eye, then... Verse 5 of chapter 7 of Matthew, then you shall see clearly to cast out the splinter from your brother's eye. Now, what does it mean then to cast out or condemn the plank from your own eye? Well, he's used that idea earlier when he talks about cutting off parts of your body that offend you and casting them out and casting them from you. What he's saying is that <clears throat> you should look at the things in your life that are sinful, that are wrong, and condemn them and say, yes. I have done that, or I can do this. And I know that sin brings death. So I condemn that. I own up and I recognize that that is sinful, and I, 
I, I reject that. I, I condemn it. I say that the wages of sin is death. That the wages of whatever sin it is going on in your life, or that has gone on in your life, that deserves condemnation. And I recognize that. That's what it is. And he's saying that if you realize that you've got the plank in your own eye and you do that, and you say, wow, I really should be condemned, how blind I am, then you will see clearly to cast the splinter out of your brother's eye. But see clearly. <clears throat> this is not, it seems to me, uh, a, uh, <clears throat> a, a correct translation. The idea really is to see dia, dia, D-I-A, to see through. That's definitely, and you can check this out if you can, make sure I'm not uh, seeing things that aren't there, but from what I can see, that is definitely what the Lord has in mind. That's definitely what the, the Greek means. And as I say, you can pick, have a look at this as far as you can and check, check me out, but it means to see through. And I can see why they translated it to see clearly. It's the idea of transparency. Clearness, transparency. But the idea is then you'll see through to cast the, uh, the moat out of your brother's eye. And I think what he may have in mind is that... <clears throat> If you do that, if you recognize the extent of your own desperation, then, then, you will see through all that stuff. You'll see through wood. You'll see through your plank. <clears throat> You'll see through his splinter. Her bit of wood in her eye. You'll see through that. You'll just see it differently. You'll see through it. Yeah, it's there. You notice it in their life. But you see through it. It's not such a huge issue for you any longer. That's a great way to be. To be able to see other people's sin, which you, I mean, you can't help but, but notice it. That's not, a, uh, that's not a sin. But you see through it. It's not a big issue for you any longer. Because of your experience with throwing out the, the plank in your own eye. When he says... Verse 5, first cast out the plank from your own eye. That proton, the Greek word proton, it definitely means most importantly, above all. It doesn't mean first do this and then do that. Like, first throw the plank of, out of your own eye. Secondly, you know, throw the splinter out of the other guy's eye. I think he's saying most importantly, above all, finally, throw that plank out of your own eye. And if you do that, You'll see through. You will see clearly. You'll see through. Not only your own plank, but also her splinter and his twig in his eye. And he says, you hypocrite. Verse 5. You hypocrite. That's a term that's normally on the Lord's lips about the Pharisees. And <clears throat> clearly the disciples despise the Pharisees. And uh, as we read the Gospels, <clears throat> we also get that impression that we also don't like Pharisees. And yet the Lord is saying that if you carry on like this, you're no better than Pharisees. If you're focused all the time upon that piece of wood that is in your brother's eye, and you're not dealing with a plank in your own eye, then you're just like them. You're no better at all than, than them. Now, verse 6 
goes on, and I believe it goes on in this same context. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast you your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. This, at first blush, is a difficult verse, because if it means what most people take it to mean, which is that, well, you shouldn't preach to people who uh, might, uh, might laugh at you and who might mock the message, because they might turn again and rend you. They might, um, they might do bad things to you. You know, if you, if you give a leaflet, uh, a tract, to, to that fellow who's looking a bit rough standing there on the street, you know what, he might, he might take it from you, see it's about Jesus, and he might come up and, and beat you on the head. So you better not give him uh, a, a tract. That's sort of how it's read. And that, that's totally against the whole tenor of New Testament teaching, which is that no one is beyond hope. Uh, give everybody a tract. Give the, get the message to everybody. This is the parable of the sower. Throw it out even if the ground you know is bad, and even if it's not even soil, it's stones. Well, throw the seed there anyway. By all means, get it out there. And if you're going you're gonna to suffer for preaching the gospel, this is quite clearly the teaching of Jesus and the example of the apostles, and take it on the chin, and take it for Jesus, and uh, that's what's to be expected. And don't flinch from it, take it unflinchingly, and just expect that you're going to have trouble in the work of the gospel. So, I, I don't think that this verse can mean that. And also, if that is its meaning, well, why does Jesus suddenly jump out of the context of what has been talked about judgment and start going on about, you know, don't... Uh, don't give tracts to uh, suspicious-looking blokes standing on street corners because they might come up and, you know, boot you in the pants. Uh, no, I, that, that's totally out of the flow of the context here. So let's have another look. Bearing in mind that five verses, that the previous five verses, uh, are all talking about don't judge. Okay. Don't throw that which is holy to the dogs. The idea of don't chuck it, don't throw it, we've just seen in verses uh, 3, 4, and 5 about casting out the splinter from your brother's eye. And we've said that that means to, to condemn. So, sort of straight away continues, don't throw the holy. Now, I really hate uh, appealing to original languages in order to, to control the, the direction of interpretation, because I, I would far rather that we could all come to a correct interpretation of any given verse in the Bible uh, just by reading it in any language translation there is. But that's not always possible. And this is one verse where I think that's the case. Give not, or don't throw, the holy. This Greek word hagios that's translated holy. Uh, it can just as well mean the holy ones, the saints. That's how it's normally translated, the saints. Don't throw the saints, the holy ones, unto the dogs. Now, the dogs on the edge of the city were associated in Jewish thought with, with condemnation. And you can see that in Revelation 22:15. Outside the city, the New Jerusalem, there were dogs. In Psalm 59, 6 and 14, we're told that the rejected will be cast out of the city uh, and will be like the dogs outside the city. So the dogs outside the city are associated with those who have been cast out of the city. Uh, 
So, don't throw the saints, the holy ones, to the dogs outside the city. Neither cast your pearls. This is this word balo. And uh, in verse 5, when he talks about casting out the uh, splinter, it's ek balo. So, it's the same idea. Casting out is very much the, the language of condemnation. Don't cast your pearls before pigs. Don't throw your pearls to the pigs. So who are the pearls? The Lord Jesus says, Matthew 13, 45, that he's a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. Revelation 21, verse 21, the twelve pearls, as in the, the pearly gates of the New Jerusalem, represent the twelve disciples. So the pearls, therefore, are the believers. And why are they your pearls? Well, because as Jesus says in John 17, throughout John 17, he makes this point that all mine, that you have given me, Father, are yours, and they're mine, and they're my disciples. That all that I have is theirs. And all that you've given me is mine, is theirs, is yours. And you know, he builds up this great picture of unity. So then, the holy, the saints, are paralleled with the pearls. Again, a symbol of, of the believers. Don't throw them to the pigs. Now, trampling by pigs was another Jewish figure of condemnation, of rejection into the Gentile world. And earlier in the sermon, in Matthew 5.13, the Lord has used this picture of uh, trampling to describe condemnation. He, he says that the salt that loses its, its saltiness is good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot. Now again, these are, this is the language of condemnation. It's the language of rejection. You remember Hebrews 10.29, they have trodden underfoot the Son of God. They have rejected the Son of God. They have despised the Son of God. So, he's saying, don't throw the holy, the saints, to the dogs outside the city. Condemn, reject God's people, God's saints. Don't cast your pearls, God's pearls, Jesus' precious pearls, the believers, don't cast them out in condemnation to the pigs, lest they trample them under their feet, despise them, condemn them, and turn again and rend you. In other words, if you do that, these pigs are going to turn around and trample on you. You are the one who is going to get condemned. If you throw out God's saints and God's pearls to the pigs in condemnation so that they can be trodden underfoot and despised and rejected, that's going to happen to you. Those pigs that you've, as it were, got on to that brother, to those pearls of God, to those holy ones of his who you wouldn't have, who you rejected, it's all going to turn around and get you. You are going to be condemned. And the idea of being trampled underfoot is not only is not only to uh, to reject; it is to despise, as I say in Hebrews ten, uh, to to trample underfoot, to tread underfoot the Son of God is to reject Him uh, and despise Him. And if we despise our brother, if we say, "Look, buddy, you're not up to the standard 
of uh, doctrinal understanding, of uh, moral behavior, so you're out. We cast you out. We disfellowship you for whatever you might want to call it politely, uh, behavior unworthy of the name of, of, of Christ and all, all this kind of stuff, then, you know, what you have done to them is going to happen to you. That's what it's saying. And it's almost too scary to think about because any of us who've had any experience of church life have encountered this mentality. And, you know, what it means is that Brethren there with their uh, briefcases and their Bibles, well-marked uh, men who have maybe given their lives to their religion very well and have held themselves back from all kinds of you know, common major sins that go on in the world, uh, but they have condemned bitterly their brethren and come to the day of judgment there in their, in their suit and tie and their well-marked Bible and uh, their... their their, their spotless uh, family history, you know, all, all my kids married well, and all, you know, all the rest of it. They'll just be thrown into the lake of fire, screaming and yelling that, that I, I, I'm a good uh, member of the church. This is a misunderstanding. No, no. Yeah. Do you understand that the whole name of the game with Christianity, that if you condemn your brother, you shall be condemned. Now, I mean, I, I hate to think of that, because I, I know the people who disfellowship me, disfellowship you know, people who, who are near and dear to me and people who I know are wonderful brethren and sisters who walk with the Lord, who have been cast out of the dogs uh, by people who apparently are very upright and apparently are very, uh, you, you know, um, men and women of integrity, apparently. But we've just read here that if you do that, you shall be condemned. Now, we've got to let God's word have its full weight. And there's no squirming and wriggling out of all this. This is quite plain. You might think that my interpretation of verse 6 is a bit novel. All right, you're welcome to that opinion. But, but really, condemn not that you, unless you're going to be condemned. I mean, there's not a great feat of a interpretation there. It's just words on the paper um, that, that are there as simple as. And so you may say, well, yeah, okay, I agree with you. But okay, my church, my denomination practices this. Well, you better get out then. That's all I can say. You, you cannot be part of this. It's like saying, well, I belong to the Nazi party, and yes, I work in Auschwitz, and yes, I'm involved in killing the Jews, but you know what? I really strongly disagree with this. Ah, you do? Nuremberg was the, the, the trials at the end of the Second World War were, were full of people who, who claimed this, probably with some level of integrity, that, uh, yeah, you, yes, I was in all these things, and yes, I was part of all this, but I did not agree with it. And I even secretly told my wife once uh, that I really didn't agree with what I was having to do at work. Yeah, but, but you did it. And if we're going to start playing the whole blame game and shifting blame and shifting guilt... Uh, and saying that, well, it wasn't me, it was them. I mean, you need to reread uh, Genesis 1 to 3, uh, chapter 3 especially. It, it's, it's not about shifting blame. Once we get into the thing of saying, I can do and participate in something that is deeply wrong, that is deeply damaging to other persons, uh, that is condemned in the Bible, that leads to my condemnation, I can be involved in it, I can be a part of it, I can be a participant in it, I can uphold it. 
Um, uh, but but I, in my heart, I didn't really. Well, on that basis then, what value is there in human behavior? What value is there in, in anything? We can live and act as we wish and just say, ah, yeah, in my heart I was with the Lord. In my heart, of course, I, I, I thought differently. Well, in that case then, all Bible teaching about behavior and about how we should act, and the Sermon on the Mount is full of it, all that then is a bit of a, an irrelevancy if all you've got to do is tick a few mental boxes within, within your, your brain cells and you're good. I've labored this point because the Lord Jesus labors it. Um, because you can understand why I would labor it if I truly am convic convicted that this is the case, that if we do these things we shall be condemned, uh, then it's my duty to, to share that with you. And as I say, it's not only a, a question of church life. You may be like me and be free from any need to uphold any church position on this fellowshipping anyone, because I'll fellowship who I want, um, and uh, I'm open uh, in that. Um, but what about in our minds? You remember when I started off by saying someone's name comes up and you have a certain train of thought that develops and uh, some idea uh, comes to your head about a certain person, something is re-stimulated within you, someone's name comes up in conversation, you meet someone and they talk to you in a certain way, and you're having your thoughts about that person. With what measure you measure, it will be measured to you again. It's not necessarily simply a question of formal attitudes, it's a question of our internal attitudes to people. So the Lord goes on in verse 7, Ask and it shall be given you, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you, because everyone who asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and him that knocks it shall be opened. Now, back in chapter 5, verse 42, we have the same words, Give to him that asks you. Same Greek words are used. And now we're told that if you ask, it shall be given to you. So, there's a sort of a mutuality there. And this continues, I think, the, the idea uh, of, of judgment, how you judge with what measure you deal out to people in judgment you shall receive. And then, in that context, he says, if you ask, it should be given to you. Because those who've asked you, you, sh you should give to them. Now, clearly, this is not a blank check promise, that you ask God to, you know, like I used to do, shut my eyes when I was a kid and say, God, please make it next time I open my eyes, that on the floor there'll be a five-pound note. And there was no five-pound note on the carpet. And it wasn't that I didn't believe. Man, I, I, I believed. I believed, man, more than anybody on this planet. I believed. But there was no five-quid on the carpet. Now, <laughs> now, the point is, this is not a, a blank check promise. It's not a blank check promise. Clearly, the, the whole message of the Bible, the example of Jesus, uh, our own examples of life show that, that you don't just uh, dial a number and, and get the answer from God. So it must therefore, the, the, this apparent blank check promise must therefore be in a spiritual sense. And likewise, give to him who asks you back in Matthew 5, verse 42, which is clearly connected here. Uh, give to him that asks you, well, not literally. I mean, you know, a drunk guy comes up to you and asks you for money to, to, to buy a, another bottle. I mean, well, you give it to him because Jesus said give to him that asks you. 
Uh, no. I think we've all figured that. Uh, anyone with any experience of pastoral work, particularly in the mission field and on support of people, will understand that, that you don't just give uh, whatever people ask if it's within your power to give it. It's what you do give, absolutely, definitely, is forgiveness, is grace, is fellowship. And so I think, when he says, asking shall be given you, I think he's talking in a spiritual sense. And in fact, verse 11 sort of takes that further when he says, if you know how to give good things to your children, how much more shall your Father in heaven give good things to them that ask him? In Luke's record, in Luke 11, 13, instead of good things, it says, God will give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. So it's talking about spiritual things. If you ask God for the Holy Spirit, for spiritual things, he'll give it to you. That's for sure. Blank check promise. And so, you ask for those spiritual things that shall be given to you. And so, Matthew 5.42, give to him that asks, you know, not giving an alcoholic another bottle, but give forgiveness, grace, acceptance to whoever wants it. Be absolutely open in it. And once you understand it, verse 7, in that way, again you see how the theme of judgment and grace and acceptance is continuing from the, the first six verses. Now, James, as I've said, is full of allusion to the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost a commentary on the Sermon. And he picks this up. He says in James 1, 5, and 6, um, if any man asks for wisdom, it will be given to him. As if he's picking up the, the sort of the misunderstanding of these words as a blank check promise. And he's saying that, yeah, he's talking about wisdom and spiritual things. And in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 of James, he, he says, you ask and you don't receive, because you ask wrongly, and you ask for the wrong things to consume upon your lusts, like me wanting my, my five-pound note, which I didn't get. And so James is, I think, just uh, correcting the, the point here, the, the misunderstanding that this is a blank check, a uh, promise about material things. He who seeks finds, verse 7. And that's very much Psalm 32, verse 6, um, when in the context of talking about his forgiveness over the Bathsheba incident, uh, David says that it, just as he has sought and found forgiveness, so everyone that is godly will find it as well. So that connection with David seeking and finding forgiveness would, uh, again, tie in uh, the whole context here to, to not material things, but to seeking and finding forgiveness. So then, the seeking, again, has been defined, end of Matthew 6.33, seek first, above all, only, the kingdom of God. And now he's saying, if you seek it, you'll find it. And of course, the Lord Jesus was a man who went out seeking goodly pearls and found them in the sense that he finds us. He says, I've not found such great faith apart from in that Gentile man in Matthew 8 verse 10. He was looking for faith and he found it in, in people. And he says, um, if you knock, it shall be opened. Well, three times, if you want the references, 
in the notes, but uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, 2 Corinthians 2, 12, Colossians 4, 3, Paul talks about how doors of opportunity in preaching the gospel have been opened to him. So, again, I think his interpretation of these, these words, knock and it shall be opened, is to seek spiritual opportunity for other people. In another take on that verse, in Luke 12, 36, we read that the Lord will knock on our door when he comes back, and we are to open immediately. And yet, Revelation 3, he stands at the door and knocks, and we are to open to him now. So again, there's this mutuality between us and the Lord. We knock on his door, and he opens. He knocks on our door, and we are to open. And of course, tragically, the rejected of the last day, Luke 13, 25, will knock on the door, and it shall not be opened. But the point is that now, that mutual two-way relationship is absolutely possible. So then, I think the point that he's making here is that in spiritual terms, if you ask uh, for spiritual things, it shall be given to you, and if people ask you for those things, you should give to them, and not judge them and not condemn them. Instead of judging people, instead of noticing the, the splinter in the guy's eye, you should be seeking men and women to come to God's kingdom. You should be finding them, just as Jesus sought for faith, found faith in people. Sought for goodly pearls, found them. And just as Paul knocked on the door, wanting opportunity to save people, and those doors were opened. That is the the thrust, the Lord is saying, of our lives. To save and not to condemn and not to fault find. Thank you.